listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Belaboured episode 219. This week, we teamed up with Stephen Pitts of Organizing Upgrade's Black Work Talk podcast to talk about the state of the Black working class while we wait for results of the union vote at Amazon's facility in Bessemer, Alabama. And to discuss the historical and present conditions in Bessemer, we are pleased to also have Robin D.G. Kelly, author of many books you should read about social movements, labor history, and Black history, but perhaps most importantly for this conversation, one of my all-time favorites, Hammer and Ho, Alabama Communists During the Great Depression. Kelly is also Distinguished Professor and Gary B. Nash Endowed Chair in U.S. History at UCLA. We recorded this episode live on Monday, April 5th, and we will link to the video in case you're interested in watching all of it. Plus, put more information about Organizing Upgrade, Black Work Talk, and as always, related stories over at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored. Thanks for listening, and thank you for supporting us at patreon.com slash belabored. Welcome to this special live edition of Descent's Belabored Podcast and Organizing Upgrades Black Work Talk. My name is Stephen Pitts. I'm co-host of Black Work Talk. I'm so, so, so very excited to be here. And thanks to you, Michelle and Sarah, for joining us on the show. Be a wonderful, should be a wonderful broadcast. Yeah. Thank you, Stephen. Um, and shortly, we're going to welcome Robin D.G. Kelly on screen, who is the author of several books you should read on Black struggle in the U.S. and beyond. But first, we are in a period of uprising, protests, all of these things. It may not feel like it right now because we're all in Zoom lockdown hell. But I wanted to talk a little bit about the conditions that Black workers are facing as we sort of kick off our conversation here. So Black workers have obviously been leaders of the fight for 15. Um, Black essential workers have been at the core of so many fights in this pandemic, not just in Bessemer. Um, from the Economic Policy Institute, I learned nearly one in three Black workers would see a raise if the minimum wage went up to $15 an hour. Not that we can count on Congress to do that anytime soon. But Black workers are also more likely to be in essential work categories, meaning they're unable to work from home, leading to unequal exposure to COVID-19, and also more likely to be in job categories where they're lost their jobs due to the virus, and least likely to be in the category of safely, though maybe bored, working at home. So in response to all of this stuff, people are starting to really talk about racial capitalism. So Stephen, can you explain what racial capitalism means and where the term comes from? Do you want a, a two-second explanation or <laughs> four-second explanation? How do you want to go on that? A little bit longer than two or four well, seconds. We'll, we'll go six, okay? Um, All right. But, but seriously, I think in the last God, maybe four or five years, there's been much more talk about the idea of racial capitalism. But actually, it's not a new new term, a new phenomenon, a new analysis at all. In some ways, you can go back to the writings of W.B. Du Bois and his book he wrote in the 1930s, I think in 1935, actually, on um, Black Reconstruction in, in America that talked about kind of how 
slavery was, was foundation of the founding of, of the United States. But also even since then, you had books written in the late 60s by Eric Williams, Slavery and Capitalism, by Walter Rodney, How Europe Undeveloped Africa, by Manning Maribel, How Capitalism Undeveloped America, that talked about the interconnections of racism and capitalism. I think that notion of interconnectivity is the best way to start looking at racial capitalism. The idea that they don't simply periodically touch one another, but foundational to the development of racism is a question of a capitalist political economy. Equally important, foundational to the idea of developing capitalism is, is structural racism. The two really cannot be separated. You might say that when we talk about racism, it occurs in the context of a certain political economy. And when people talk about how capitalism unfolds, how, how, how it has unfolded, it unfolds because of racism. Um, so those to me are the most crucial things to look at initially and look at racial capitalism. What's fascinating, too, is just a slight little detour. I think for a lot of reasons, it may go beyond the scope of this one conversation we have, is that a lot of ways people talk about racial capitalism, but I think they focus a lot on history as to the origins of this country, which is clearly important. But we have less of an insight around capitalism and the black condition today. I say in my snarkier days that, that people will talk about racial capitalism and forget about capitalism. So I think it's really important to look at the question of how this notion of economic exploitation is fundamental to the question of the black condition today. Yeah. Um, I think it's also not a coincidence that we're seeing um, this surge in Black Lives Matter protests coinciding with the disproportionate impacts of the pandemic on the Black community and communities of color more broadly, um, as well as um, this heightened uh, activity that we see among frontline workers. Um, and you really see sort of the intersection of racial capitalism and how it affects uh, public health, right? Um, um, issues of uh, not just uh, not just economic justice, but really um, sort of economic sovereignty and um, this idea of um, self-determination, right? And uh, what it means for workers to have dignity at work. Um, I was just looking, when I was reading up on in preparation for today's discussion, I was just looking at the economic platform of the movement for Black Lives and looking at how um, they really foreground uh, the need for some kind of state intervention um, in order to advance a racial justice agenda, um, looking at things like um, state-sponsored programs for jobs, um, you know, decent work, um, efforts to not just raise working standards across the board, but also looking at um, how to really seed uh the foundation for worker empowerment um, with a focus on racial equity. So protecting the right to organize, um, expanding the right to organize, um, and understanding that um, within the constraints of the National Labor Relations Act, um, many workers today are extremely hamstrung in terms of um, the actions they can take to organize collectively, to have um, any kind of collective voice, to seek legal recourse against attacks on the right to organize, and Amazon workers in Bessemer are at the core of that. Um, and it's, um, uh, you know, I remember reading some reports saying that uh, Alabama was sort of an unlikely place for a union drive uh, at Amazon to get this far. But um, we're going to see later with our discussion um, with uh, Professor Kelly that um, really it's it's not coincidental at all, right, um, that all these things are happening in the South. And there have been so many efforts um, to really 
look at and sort of dissect, you know, why can't we organize the South, right, over the years? Um, and we're coming up on that question again. Yeah, although I also want to, like, you know, remind us that that the South is not sort of the place where racial capitalism happens. And here in New York City, where we are, um, that it's not a problem. Um, we are still, I think, one of the most segregated cities in the country, right? And that shows up in what jobs people do and who is in and who is out of things. I've been watching, of course, the sort of excluded workers organizing that's been going on around the New York state budget and who are the excluded workers, right? They mostly don't look much like me. Yeah. And, and you're right in terms of the fact that there's no sort of lock on racial capitalism in the South. The idea of having this kind of broader analysis of social systems means any place in the world you will find racial capitalism. Now, it may come out differently given the, the, the particular details of those locales, but still you have this notion of, of where we see capitalism and racism is impacts. And if you look at kind of the nature of black work in America, about 46% of, of all black workers are in three sectors, in retail and in private sector healthcare and social services and the public sector, which means that if we could radically transform work in those three sectors, we'd impact half of the black community. So a lot of times this this what I call artificial separation between black issues and worker issues. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that you no, know, we always say that we don't we don't live to work, we work to live. And and so the extent we're trying to I'll pluck your book, maybe it should be a subtitle, maybe Sarah, another <laughs> subtitle, I don't know. But to the extent that, that that we're trying to actually improve the condition of black folks and, and, and trying to kind of free black folks, that has to mean freeing the nature of black work. And it means that we don't have all black sectors. And so we need to f- improve the sectors where black folks actually are. Those three are important ones. Um, looking at the, the fight against Amazon, which, of course, is not certainly not limited to the South. I mean, um, both Sarah and I were t- have been talking to Amazon workers right here in New York on Staten Island, right, um, who are the subject of really racially targeted attacks on um, the efforts to organize there, right? So um, what Amazon has done uh, in an odd way is sort of um, – help to galvanize a nationwide movement simply by nature of, um, you know, the size and scope of its hegemony, right? Um, We now have uh, warehouses across the country where you see workers rising up against the same types of um, uh, sort of uh, exhausting, uh, extremely stressful, um, often uh, like physically uh, dangerous uh, conditions at work. In the context of the overall decline of organized labor in this country, um, union representation uh, among black workers, right, black workers are, are more likely than any other racial category, right, to uh, to uh, be be represented by unions, to be members of unions. And um, and that um, kind of speaks to uh, both the desire as well as, um, I guess, sort of the unfulfilled promise of, of um, our, you know, the way organized labor works today, um, the constraints it faces legally and um, and the need to really look more expansively at at organizing and shop floor organizing and, and what that means for the broader kind of community, right? Whether it's, um, you know, uh, having a voice at work or, um, you know, being able to lead, you know, healthy, dignified lives, having access to decent schools, right? And having um, opportunities to, um, you know, uh, enjoy the same level of citizenship as um, any of their peers. It's also important that we talk about Amazon as a starting point. But if we look at warehousing, the kind of industry, the warehousing industry, while blacks are about 13% of the overall workforce, they represent 20% of the workers in warehousing. 
And so once again, we, we can talk about how this question of the expansion of the state of capitalism with the increasing reliance on logistics is tied up with the question of Black work and Black life. And so to the extent we're talking once again about trying to improve the, the, the living conditions for kids whose parents work in warehouses, it means transforming those situations. Well, Amazon's kind of a hot topic for today, um, literally today and the kind of the moment we're in, it's important for me to think about and talk about and have discussions around the question of the large issue of the Black working class. And I mentioned some of the numbers in terms of where Black folks are located. But beyond that, I read this fascinating book, God, long ago, um, it was by the historian named Earl Lewis. And he was looking at the issue of the development of the shipbuilding um, industry in Virginia. And he taught, this is in kind of the, the, the Jim Crow era. And he talked about how the, as you built out the industry, that in some ways is a f- function of capitalist development. You have relationships between workers and managers and bosses. But because of Jim Crow in the South had a racialized hierarchy in the workforce. So we're developing those cases of what he called a racialized class consciousness, where you saw kind of a racial hierarchy, black people doing menial work, white folks being bosses, but it wasn't simply a racial hierarchy, it's a class hierarchy. I think that notion of kind of racialized class consciousness needs to be discussed more and more and more and more. So when we talk about the nature of black racial and economic exploitation, we see how class fits into the story itself. Because too often what happens, we limit the, the analysis to simply the racial dimension. And, and a couple of things happen when we limit things to the racial dimension. First, the solution is to simply derace it, which means have black managers. But also, I think, in, um, in looking at how activists come into the movement, they come into the movement in a context. And to the extent that they see the world described being a, a purely or a narrowly racist world, they will see how class impacts the world they're really fighting. So to the extent that we can have a broader, I'll say more nuanced, more accurate view of the world, we can talk about race and class, it means that the new kind of activists will begin to see the world not just through a racial lens, but through a more accurate lens that looks at both race and class as being deeply, deeply intertwined. Should we bring on our special guest now? Um, We should. Robin D.G. Kelly, he's a professor of history at UCLA. And um, beyond that, he's been incredible, both scholar in the narrow sense of the world, but simply mover in the world itself. And when we talk about some of the important issues facing us in, in, in different venues that most folk read, not some strange academic journal, Robin's there, bring both nuance to conversations and depth of conversations and historical sweep. So Robin, thanks a lot for joining us. I'm glad you're here. Thank you so much. And I'm with three of my favorite people. I mean, in terms of who I read and listen to, I'm just, I'm in awe, I have to say, in awe. Well, we're very, very happy you're here. You know, we, we thought of you when we were thinking about people to bring on as, as guests, because um, uh, just in light of the brilliant research that you've done, uh, looking at sort of the deep historical roots of um, labor and, and particularly uh, left uh, insurgencies uh, in the South and particularly in Alabama. So um, this seemed right in your wheelhouse. Um, but, um, you know, I should uh, maybe just ask a pretty open-ended question, which is as you watch events unfold in Bessemer right now, um, you know, I, I cheated a little bit when I was pre- prepping for the show and I looked up all the references to Bessemer in Hammer and Ho. But, um, you know, in light of uh, the fact that you 
um, have really shed a lot of historical light on uh, activism in Bessemer and that part of the South um, in a much earlier period in labor history. Uh, what can you tell us about events unfolding there today? Sure. Uh, before I answer the question, I just want to add a couple of things. One, you know, Hammer and Ho has gotten a lot of, you know, attention as a result of events in Bessemer. Uh, but I want to point out a couple other books that people should check out. Um, Bobby Wilson wrote this amazing book called America's Johannesburg, which is about Birmingham. Uh, Horace Huntley is really the premier historian of the International Mine Mill and Smelter Workers Union in um, in Bessemer, Birmingham area. I'm so glad um, Steve mentioned my my really dear friend Earl Lewis, his book In Their Own Interests. Um, there's a whole body of scholarship that's out here that sort of tells the story. And by the way, um, do not buy my book from Amazon. <laughs> I'm just saying. You can get it for free if you go to the UNC Press blog. We're giving it away, an ebook. So I'm just saying, don't buy my books from don't buy my books from Amazon. But having said that, um, the events I, I was so appreciative of the fact that you sort of you all of you led off with the fact that the South is um, the place to be expected to blow up. It's not necessarily a backwater. It's a place where um, they have the most intense uh, right to work in anti-union laws for a reason, because they are afraid of of workers because they suppress interracial movements for democracy. I mean, this is what they do. Um, In Alabama in particular, I mean, we see the right to work laws that came into being uh, in the 2000s, but Alabama had a right to work law in 1953. And 2016, as a result of older suppression, they were able to enshrine right to work in the constitution. So this is why um, things pop off in Alabama because it has a history of union organizing. Um, even before the 1930s, the Knights of Labor, the United Mine Workers, they were all active interracial movements in the South in the late 19th century. The 30s and 40s, of course, is the height of organizing in the mines and the mills, the factories, and even in the countryside, in the rural areas, uh, where cotton pickers went on strike in 1935 trying to get a dollar a day for picking cotton. So there's, there's a long history, and that history depended on a couple of things. One, it depended on radical organizations like the Communist Party uh, that stepped up and, you know, organized workers that, were, that people were told couldn't be organized. Of course, Black workers have always been organized, maybe not in unions, but certainly in churches and mutual benefits associations and all kinds of ways. Um, but the other thing that, that made a difference in the South was uh, the National Labor Relations Board. Uh, the fact that uh, the New Deal, which was a product of working class struggle across the country, uh, did create you know, labor law, uh, did create um, the right uh, to organize as a basic principle. I mean, this is what happened um, as a result of a federal government that no matter how weak the effort might have been, you know, sort of uh, gave um, win behind the sails of union organizing. Uh, and then as a result of that, whenever the Tennessee Coal and Iron Company, which was the main um, corporation, kind of the Amazon of its day uh, in Alabama, when it tried to form company unions and extract white workers through race baiting, they won some, but they didn't win. 
a lot of the white workers realized it wasn't in their interest. And so the fact that interracial organizing was even possible, led by Black workers, this is a lesson that we have to take. And what we're seeing uh, in, at the, the warehouse in Amazon right now is you know, a, a union that's, uh, or a workplace that's 85% Black, uh, mostly female, um, really at the forefront and, and not buying the kind of um, propaganda that the Jeff Bezos and Amazon machine uh, presents. There's this move for $15 an hour minimum wage. Um, but Amazon's position is that we already pay $15.30 minimum wage, so we're, we're the good guys, uh, without ever admitting that warehouse workers in Alabama make $20 an hour because they're union, you know? So, and, and the workplace conditions are not as bad, and workers are not... Um, you know, dying and being denied bathroom breaks and being work, and working really long hours. Uh, so, you know, this is an opportunity right now that if if the union wins this election, and even if they don't win the election, um, what is happening in Alabama is the beginning of what we're seeing now, which is a real kind of resurgence of a new renewed labor movement. I had a quick question. Um... Now, I, I thought about in some ways post this election, one question is kind of the, the Georgification of Alabama. How do you kind of bring kind of the, the, the contested battle in Georgia um, westward to Alabama? But I thought also, Robin, in your work that you focused on the role of the Communist Party in being the, the kind of a backbone element of the radical organizing in the 30s and 40s there. And we don't have that now. And, and so when you think about the nature of trying to push forth progressive, good, left organizing, in the absence of some sort of party of the Communist Party, how do you th- see things unfolding? What things, how do you say it? What thing do you think we should look at that we could do, given the, the vacuum that does exist politically? Right. Well, you know, that's, a, that's such an excellent question, and no one has ever asked me that question before. Like, you're the first, and this is one of the best questions on the planet, and this is why. Because I think, you know, and I'm going to, I'm going to complicate things a little bit. I think that, you know, while the Communist Party and all the other left organizations that were doing important labor work, Trotskyists, some of the anarchists, um, the split, that despite that, and even in the 1970s when you had a whole range of Maoists, Marxist-Leninist organizations doing industrial concentration work, they had a weakness. And one of their weaknesses was sectarianism. I mean, there was a way in which some of the battles between Trotskyists and communists undercut the important labor movement work they were doing. Alabama is a little different because people didn't have time for that. I mean, people were just busy trying not to get killed. And so their commitment to social justice was so big, their commitment to labor organizing was so great that they were very successful. Now, on the other hand, in Alabama, the CIO was able to absorb some of the best communists away from the Communist Party into the CIO. They didn't become union bureaucrats, but they became, you know, union, disciplined union organizers, and that was their focus. The social justice piece kind of fell out. Now, having said that, I've seen so many left organizations implode because of other kinds of issues. What we're seeing now, and I'm and I'm kind of heartened by it is we're seeing new left formations who are doing labor work. It may not look the same. So, for example, 
left roots, um, left voices, uh, members of DSA labor. Um, there are people who are out there doing some really interesting work politically with workers, not just, um, you know, in, in small rooms, you know, just arguing with each other. Uh, and I think we're going to see more of that. More importantly, I think that if we look, again, to use Alabama as an example, so many people who came into the Amazon warehouse to work were also active in the um, anti-police rebellions in um, June of 2020 uh, and throughout July. And they, they came to union meetings with Black Lives Matter pins on and shirts. And in other words, they were radicalized by other things and they, be, they saw the connection between state violence, precarity, all the things that you all were talking about in terms of like the conditions of Black workers is about the conditions of life. It's about the ability just to live. It's, it's what will happen if a $15 an hour minimum wage were really implemented for all those workers who are living in poverty. They're still going to be barely in poverty anyway with $30,000 a year. But nevertheless, that they're beginning to see or, or have seen, I shouldn't say beginning to, have seen the connections between um, economic exploitation, injustice, and racism uh, and, and gender inequities in terms of, of you know, reproductive labor, in terms of um, un, unwaged, unpaid labor, stuff that you know, Sarah beautifully writes about in her book, um, and their ability to actually sustain themselves as a movement to create workplace justice and workplace equity. So all that there is like, it's like on the table right now. And what we need is an analysis uh, alongside all this movement work that is not tied or tethered to old ways of thinking, but to the new conditions of labor and work right now. Um, so that we can think of racial capitalism as, you know, the, the fundamental foundation for, you know, the kind of oppression that all of us, irrespective of race or gender, uh, all of us in the class experience and have to push back against. So I'm just struck by the uh, the comment that just went on screen from my old buddy, Ben Spate, who once took me to an organizing meeting in Savannah, Georgia, with port truck drivers, speaking of black workers in the South, and uh, a workforce in the South that actually has a long history of racial justice organizing. Um, so before I get back to that question, um, we want to pause for a second. We know everybody and their mother is asking for your money right now. And we understand that a lot of people are broke. But if you do want to support our wonderful podcasts, we've been working for years to bring you news and analysis on the labor movement by the people who make it happen. And it would really help us all a whole lot if you would support us. You can support us at patreon.com slash belabored. And you can support Black Work Talk at if you go to bit.ly slash Black Work Talk. And now my question is actually going to be about these other workforces in the South that are organized. Um, poultry plant workers have been really integral to the, the organizing process at the Bessemer Amazon facility. There's also mine workers in Alabama now on strike. Um, so even though sort of everybody's attention is kind of laser focused on Bessemer 
there's a lot going on all around right here. So could you situate the Bessemer moment in this broader labor struggle in this part of the country? Right, right. In fact, I would just speak specifically about the the warrior mine strike and um in Tuscaloosa County, which is about 30-minute drive, I think, from, from Bessemer. Uh, and so right now, um, about 1,100 workers uh, at the Warrior Met uh, Mine went on strike demanding a better contract. About one-third of those workers are Black, these mine workers. And, you know, it's a classic kind of neoliberal story where um, the, the Warrior Met Mines were owned by another company called Walter Energy, uh, in 2016, they went bankrupt, sold the company. The company then, you know, renegotiated the contract or reimposed, I should say, a contract and imposed a $6 an hour wage cut, uh, plus cuts in benefits, plus cuts in pensions. Uh, and then after that made record profits. 2020, the, the company made profits when all these other companies <laughs> were losing. And still, um, they're they're trying to renegotiate a contract, and the company's coming back uh, with more wage cuts and more cuts to protections and more cuts to benefits. And the cat who runs it, the CEO um, Walter Scheller, I think his name is Walter Scheller III, uh, made four million dollars last year, one third of it in bonuses. So you've got these workers who are working twelve hour shifts, six days, sometimes seven days a week. They're they got three vacation days, or three holidays rather, over the year. And they're like, we can't even see our family. We're doing the work. You know, we're actually taking the coal out the mines. That, that alone is bad enough. You know, we need to keep the coal in the mines. But that's another story. They're doing this work and, and, and their wages are just plummeting while the CEO's making $4 million a year. That is... That's the kind of um, kind of profane uh, system that, you know, we could talk about Jeff Bezos because he gets a lot more attention, but this is happening all over. Uh, you've got steel workers on strike right now in the Allegheny uh, area. You've got, um, certainly poultry workers have been, have taken the lead. Um, and I think all this tells us, and I think an important lesson, and that is that, you know, though we're, we're on the verge of what may appear to be a kind of renaissance of the labor movement, a kind of new insurgency. The fact is, if we kind of go back, and all of you know this because you've been involved with labor for so long, there's not been a year that there hasn't been intense labor struggles. (laughs) It just has not been a year that hasn't happened. And I think we could learn from some of the lessons. We don't have to go back to the 30s and 40s. We can just go back uh, in fact, I, one of my favorite stories to talk about, we can go back to, to 1996. Uh, and to me, one of the models besides the poultry workers uh, is the, the workers uh, in Greensboro, North Carolina, uh, who went up against Walmart um, uh, to unite. Um, and one of the things they were able to do was to really build a community labor strategy uh, to, to, you know, turn uh, what was, um, what appeared to be a labor uh, struggle into a struggle for basic civil rights, one that got the support of the clergy, support of civil rights organizers, and got the, the um, city council in uh, Greensboro to, uh, to vote for overwhelmingly support uh, 
a minimum wage for all incoming, living wage legislation for all incoming um, companies after Walmart. And, and they won that. Uh, but, if, but you can't win if you don't have a deeper solidarity beyond your workplace. And I think this is really the important lesson for all the struggles we're talking about, all of them. I mean, Nissan, the Nissan struggle in Mississippi was unfortunately a loss. And part of that loss had to do with um, an inability to really build solidarity even beyond those Nissan workers in, in Mississippi, as well as the, the kind of vicious anti-union policies on the part of Nissan. And meanwhile, um, we don't, we're not always quick to participate in the kinds of consumer boycotts and other things that's required to support these kinds of labor initiatives. Now, Robin, you mentioned having deep connections, community, and solidarity. I think of a couple of things. One is the fact that I think in some ways the whole idea of labor versus community is an artifact of, of our narrowness in our politics. Because in many ways, you know, I mean, I was, my last show, Maurice Weeks says, I'm Black 24 7. And so you can't separate that I'm black here and not black here. And so oftentimes the best ambassadors for the union movements to the community are the workers themselves. And oftentimes that's kind of strength we don't utilize. So what happens if you have a kind of narrow, shallow transactional relationship and not a transformational one? I also think about, you, know, you talked about the fact that in the best in a campaign, a lot of folk were coming to union meetings with Black Lives Matter buttons. And I thought about the idea of really deeply rooting folk. And you you, you had a, a concept you talked about within that essay, Rihanna Who We Seen by Hidden Transcripts. This whole notion that, that, that a lot of times we want to have the big stuff. with the big stuff? Take down a statue, have a demonstration, have a mobilization. But we, the key issue is how do folk fight on a daily basis? And how do you recognize that and tap into that to build a larger struggle? Absolutely. I mean, I totally agree. And and that's where strategy comes in. That's also where um, recognizing the kind of everyday forms of resistance that people engage in at work, uh, little pieces, bits of mutual aid, for example. You know, you think about what it means to be a, a warehouse worker and having to walk uh, miles, literally, uh, and how individualizing, atomizing that can be. Um, and what Amazon workers um and, and, and even before the kind of formal um, organizing um, of the retail wholesale department store uh, union, but the, the kind of the Amazonian um, solidarity organizations, they were trying to figure out ways to work together to, to change the labor process, to help each other, to help a worker who's, who's feeling sick and tired. That's no different from the way that tobacco workers uh, on the line would help you know, women who might have been um, pregnant, for example, or sick, you know, to take up their task. That's solidarity. I mean, it's, it's, and that's exactly, well, once you see those kinds of strategies, then it also helps to develop new sorts of strategies uh, and new kinds of demands to change the workplace. You know, and this one thing I want to add to that, um, and that's about the, the division between kind of community and labor. You're absolutely right. It is a false division. Uh, one of the things that we do have to pay attention to are the class divisions within our communities. And um, you started out ta- uh, mentioning the, um, the voter suppression laws in Georgia. And one of the things I was talking about recently uh, was the fact that in the 1930s in Alabama, 
um, CIO workers, many of whom were Black, were the ones who were running the right to vote clubs, which were or, you know, trying to do voter registration in the 30s and 40s, especially in the 30s. Uh, the Black elite that wanted to maintain the franchise for Black elites <laughs> formed an oppositional organization, like a civic f- federation, that was like, we don't want those Negroes to have the vote because, you know, we're the ones that deserve it and we're the ones that can keep them in line. So one of the things that we have to pay attention to is like the relationship between that story and what happened in June of 2020 when Jeff Bezos said, you know what, I'm going to give $10 million to all these Black organizations, you know, as well as the ACLU. I'm going to give money to Urban League, NAACP what he thought was Black Lives Matter, not the movement for Black Lives, which is a little different. Um, and he gave this money, which is basically a penny, you know, given his, his um, deep pockets. But that $10 million bought silence. Because are we talking about the National Urban League's position on the Bessemer workers? They don't have a position, right? They don't have a position. So there's a lot of organizations <laughs> And people who can be bought off. And when we think about the the community, that community is also rich with tensions and struggles. And we have to figure out what side we're on. This discussion of community and and labor alliances and sort of the class divisions uh, in each of those is is really uh, a good segue to our first audience question. Um, This is from China Brodsky. um, And... uh, The question is, as a follow-up to the Worker Community Alliances topic, um, can Kelly and others talk about the role of United We Dream, Movement for Black Lives, et cetera, in engaging BIPOC worker struggles and vice versa? Um, I want others to answer the question, so I'm going to be really brief on on a couple of things. Uh, Just just to throw out a couple of things, I think um, a reminder that it was July 20th, I believe, going by memory here, that um, we had the Strike for Black Lives uh, action, which I think is significant. We don't always remember that because it was a whole year ago, not even a year ago. But it was very significant in that a lot of unions uh, had got the support from amazing organizers. uh, And of course, the Movement for Black Lives was at the forefront of helping to put that together. Um, You you mentioned, Michelle, the Movement for Black Lives um, a policy statement, which had been updated uh, last year as well in August. And it is a powerful agenda. That's a labor, it's a working class agenda, you know, a working class agenda that does two really important things. One, proposes way, ways that state and federal governments could actually put more money in people's pockets, ensure fairness, um, support the right to organize and all that. Uh, but also figure out ways to support movements and support movements um, much like the Black Manifesto did in 1969, where part of the money for reparations was going to go into supporting organizing campaigns. So they want to support movements. And and Movement for Black Lives' vision was one that wasn't limited to the United States. They want to end war everywhere, everywhere in the planet. And, you know, one of the great things I love about, you know, organizing upgrades is that you know, you want to, you, you deal with the planet, the whole planet. And so I think these are ways to think about the, the role that they've played, among others. That's just, that's just movement for, movement for Black Lives. 
I don't have a lot of specific things to mention, but I think of kind of a, a North Star on the question of how the activists relate to like, worker struggles. Is it, was, it came from a, um, the, one of the biographies, autobiography of John Lewis. And he was talking about the um, first efforts of SNCC in Mississippi. And he said that they went to Mississippi, they got there, they went there to listen and to pick cotton with folk and live with folk. They didn't come with the answer or the program or the word or the gospel. I think to me it's an important thing because because you may have oftentimes alignments between activist groups and set of black workers on basic orientations in terms of where you're going, where you want to go politically. But in terms of how to get there, how you describe it, maybe a big gulf between the two two groups of people. So I think it's really important for folk to actually talk to black workers and work with them and listen to them and then see how through that kind of developing of deep relationships, you build more power to change the world. To me, it's super, super important. That makes me think of the, there was sort of a kerfuffle on the internets. Robin, having quit Twitter, you missed so much fun. I'm kidding. You haven't missed nothing. Um, about people wanting to boycott Amazon in, in solidarity with the workers. And then the union sort of puts out a statement saying, we haven't called for a boycott. And I found myself having these sort of conversations with people who were like really defensive. And I was like, look, you don't ever have to buy anything from Amazon again. Like you are perfectly welcome to never shop at Amazon. But like, if you want to be in solidarity with these workers, it's like Stephen was just saying, you do have to listen to what they're actually asking for and find ways to be in relationship. And that's been complicated because of a pandemic. When you can't figure out how to be on the ground there and build those relationships, then what relationships can you build closer to home? And, you know, one of the things I was talking to um, some other workers who were organizing and they were like, you know, the best thing you can do for us is organize your own workplace. Um, And so the ways that these sort of conversations about solidarity do have to involve real relationships and they can't just be sort of like the easiest thing for me to do is declare that I am boycotting Amazon in solidarity with these workers and that that is the thing that I will do and I want to feel virtuous for it. And it's like, you can feel great about not shopping at Amazon. Fine. Yes. Please buy my book from anything other than Amazon. But to really build relationships about and to really build organizing, it's going to take so much more than tweets. Um, this discussion on boycotting Amazon reminds me of um, the way uh, so much of our uh, political activism is often oriented around our role as consumers and not necessarily as workers. And I think that also warps um, our our notions of class in this country and sort of what is within our power to do as economic citizens, right? Um, uh, not just as consumers, but as uh, as denizens of a larger, broader uh, workforce and a, and a broader working class, right? Um, on this issue of worker community alliances, I was just thinking about um, uh, what we had talked about earlier in terms of, um, you know, not sort of uh, creating this artificial dichotomy between, uh, you know, workplace interests and community interests. And I think um, these frameworks like organizing for the common or bargaining for the common good, right? And um, what uh, a lot of educators are doing and educator unions are doing um, around foregrounding, uh, uh, you know, real uh, community issues, um, issues about economic justice that go beyond the workplace, and also um, recognizing that um, people who, uh, uh, people who receive public services, who use our schools, right? Um, People who learn at our schools um, and those families are, you know, their interests are not completely 
divorced or in opposition to um, the interests of uh, the educators in the classroom, right? Um, in fact, um, you know, understanding sort of the union of those interests is really critical to creating a broad-based mobilization that can really advance um, not just workers, but the, the broader labor movement as a whole. Um, and in terms of just, you know, the alliances of different groups and movements, um, I think uh, this, this brings us back to Amazon, really, because Amazon is, is both, um, has both, you know, monopolistic characteristics as well as monopsonistic characteristics in terms of its really totalizing effect on, on the workforce. And um, because so many people are sort of, um, you know, under the boot of, uh, of Amazon as workers, right, as, as well as living under um, sort of the the monopoly of uh, Amazon's effect on retail, right? We all sort of feel the Amazon hegemony, right, in our everyday lives. Um, and the mo- some of the some of the fiercest mobilizations against Amazon um, outside of workplaces, um, outside of the warehouses, was about Amazon's uh, sort of server services, right, and how they are linked to state violence in many cases, and assist police forces and racial profiling, and are used to, uh, you know, Amazon has uh, incredible control over extremely powerful technology that is used not just to surveil its own workers, which we see happening right now in their union busting tactics, but also to surveil the rest of us, right? So uh, we all sort of live under Amazon's shadow. Anybody know if StreamYard is on AWS? Oh, damn. <laughs> it's fine. This was the point point in the boycott there, right? It was like, oh, this, this web services. But bringing up Amazon web services actually brings me to the next question that I wanted to ask Robin, but also the rest of you. Because of Bessemer, I'm getting a lot of requests to write about tech workers, and I'm doing big air quotes around tech workers for those of you who are listening and not watching the video. And my question is always, what is a tech worker? What do you mean by that? Who are you asking me to write about? Um, So thinking about the question of innovation and tech companies use their supposed innovation to justify their horrible working conditions. But of course, workers have long been struggling against automation, the speed up, technologically imposed working conditions. And in fact, things that Amazon workers have said to me sound very much like things that the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement and the League of Revolutionary Black Workers in Detroit were saying about the speed up on the automobile line in like the 60s and 70s. So I'm wondering, Robin, and also Stephen and Michelle, if you have some thoughts on the innovation of technology and what that does and doesn't actually tell us about what's happening at Amazon right now. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's definitely true. You know, um, you know, and also technology is designed in uh, a world that's based on capital accumulation for the purposes of capital accumulation. I think that, you know, think about the concept. I mean, this is more abstract, but do you think about the concept of what's a labor-saving device? Um, Historically, especially in terms of the gendering of labor-saving devices, so-called labor-saving devices have actually increased work. Um, They're not, it's not about, you know, giving people free time. It's about being able to be more productive and efficient. And so I think, you know, to go back to Stephen's point, um, you know, ideology is really foundational because we live in an ideology where the point of, of technology is efficiency, is productivity, uh, and with efficiency and productivity comes surveillance. Because, you know, you, you know, going back to Taylorism, 
um, the whole idea, you know, and again, this is just workplace, is to police workplaces. Go, go back before Taylorism. Go back to the Panopticon. I mean, the Panopticon, of course, um, which, you know, Foucault writes about, but uh, was Jeremy Bentham's invention, uh, which we see in prisons as a way to surveil, you know, prisoners through this 360-degree view, was really initially meant to surveil workers. From to, as Peter Leinbaugh talks about in his brilliant book, um, uh, uh, The London Hanged, the whole point is to stop workers from taking things that they feel like they have a right to take, like excess wood in a, sh- in a shipyard and that sort of thing. So I, I actually, I, to, I want to doubly agree with what with, with Steve was saying because, you know, no one here is a Luddite. No one here wants to sort of um, eliminate new forms of technology, but you know, at the same time, if technology's purpose is efficiency, productivity, capital accumulation, um, then we have to ask a really hard question. You know, why is it that the socialist countries like the Soviet Union in in its heyday use the same technology, the same concepts of efficiency, the same capitalist principles, um, and and produce the same kind of labor alienation? You know, um, and it's, so these are really, I think, critical questions because it's not enough for workers to just control the technology. It's we've got to interrogate it, investigate it, rethink it, um, and think about, you know. And again, this is not about tech workers per se, but about technology. And, and you have to really, really rethink what technology is supposed to do for us, and how we can try to restore our dignity and humanity in our sense of community. And sometimes the very means that allow us to organize, like Twitter, for example, could actually have atomizing effect as well. Say it ain't so of Twitter. <laughs> Innova- <laughs> seeking innovations we could all live without at this point. Hopefully. I but, really uh, would like to live without it. Um, I was going to say, the the uh, it's perhaps it's not so much technology itself, but sort of the mystique around technology and the cultural impacts of living in a highly technologized society. Um, and this notion of, I mean, um, Sarah and I have talked about this before, but like there's sort of a vogue in the labor movement about talking about the future of work, right? And sort of this idea that, you know, in the future, some nebulous future, like workers will become obsolete and what do we do? And there's a lot of catastrophizing around this idea that, um, like technology is some sort of uh, this sort of relentless march of progress has some sort of inevitability um, embedded in it, and that um, we have no agency as you know members of society or as lawmakers or you know um, or or as workers or unions right to um, exert any kind of control over that. And and so I think the the sort of um, the way we're so sort of mystified with technology and and afraid of it in some ways is used to um, manipulate public opinion and to um, and to obfuscate and um, and create this sort of um, uh, this this sort of uh, you know appealing futuristic veneer around very old forms of exploitation right and so um, you know think about all of the so-called tech industry 
uh, forms of work, right, in the so-called gig economy that are really just good old-fashioned casualized labor, right? Um, it's just attached to an app um, instead of, you know, a taxi dispatching company. Or, uh, you know, now they have Uber for care work, where you can get your babysitter on sort of like this digitized hiring hall, you know, like, so, um, so a lot of this stuff is really just technology used as a kind of fig leaf um, for uh, glossing over some very uh, deeply historically ingrained um, elements of, of capitalism. Yeah, I, I because I brought up the port truck drivers earlier, I feel like I have to go back to like the port truckers were Uber before Uber was Uber, right? The industry got deregulated, partly, in fact, because um, black workers and women were complaining that they were locked out of by a racist union, the good jobs. And so the solution, because it was the 80s, rather than opening, making the union open up and allow people in, they deregulate the whole damn industry. And then suddenly the truckers have to buy their own trucks, and they're responsible for all of the costs. And now, yeah, on the East Coast, it is mostly black men drivers. And on the West Coast, it's mostly Latino drivers. And they're all screwed. And they did all this without an app. Because it turns out it's got nothing to do with technology. It's just about deregulation and skirting labor law and exploiting workers of color. It makes me think back to some things that the ideas popped up through a lot of the conversations. But I thought back to, um, well, because of that, I thought back to World War II, and the Pittsburgh Courier put forth the idea of a double V campaign, the victory over fascism abroad and the victory over racism here at home. And I think that in some ways we're in the same situation today, where on the one hand, we're in the middle of an important fight for democracy, the idea of we want to be able to vote. That's one victory we've got to have. But you mentioned earlier that, that you know, Jeff Bezos, if we keep picking on him, by the way, that, that he's giving money to support those efforts. Um, to to, ex- to expand voting rights, as are a lot of other corporations doing, or kind of some ways criticizing what's happening in, across the different Republican states. But we know those same people won't support ideas of more worker power. And so it's very important, I think, to consistently talk about fighting on two fronts. Well, the one front is the, the, the very important fight for, for democracy, um, but it's important. The other front talks about democracy and power in the sphere of the economy as well. I'm sure when we go to that kind of battle, we'll lose a lot of our a lot of our so-called friends. So Merle Ratner asks, uh, these workers are the essential workers from COVID crisis and demonstrate intersections of labor and community class slash race issues. Is there a way we can use this concept to strengthen our organizing? I love the essential worker distinction because it suddenly gave us this like moment to talk about what work is necessary to actually sustain human life, right? What is the work of, of social reproduction, as we would say? Um, and that that shows us what that is, right? That, that social reproduction work is also happening in an Amazon warehouse, right? It is happening in a Walmart. It's happening in a pharmacy. It's happening um, in any number of places, right? It's happening in a grocery store. There was a wonderful article. I'll find the link after I'm done running my mouth um, by a grocery store worker who was talking about the extra emotional weight of like talking to customers who suddenly hadn't seen another person all week. And when we talk about what's essential, we can also talk about all the work that wasn't essential. Like, oh, you know, um, Wall Street. I'm not that far away from it right here. So I I think about that. Um, They could just stop working. That would be great. They could permanently stop working. Um, And it, yeah, so it opens up all of these questions about like how we value or don't value the work that's actually necessary to sustain human life. 
and how we can actually like change the way we work really, really, really quickly. Which is great because we have to because climate change is coming. And as Robin already said about the coal mines, like we got to leave the coal in the ground and a lot of other things besides. Um, But I think, yeah, I think it's a huge, huge opening for things that we can talk about. Um, Can I add something to that? And and this is actually building on your own work, Sarah. Um, You know, when we think about essential workers, isn't it incredible that uh, the work of household social reproduction is not included. You know, we we talk about um, the Rescue Act and these kind of short-term, you know, checks that are helping people get by uh, when they're laid off or their their wages are low or their working hours are low. Uh, but part of the I think the the beauty of an argument for basic income uh, is if we think of basic income not as basic income but wages for housework in housework, not necessarily gendered always female, but all housework, then, you know, now we're talking about recognizing the essential work that's being done every day uh, in our households, raising our children, um, kids who are online, you know, the um, food. Well, I mean, you know, even even if, if Amazon workers go on strike, who will be doing the essential work of social reproductions, not just getting... A, a, a fund drawing into a strike fund, but it's also being able to reproduce labor every single day. So we really need to think broadly about who's an essential worker. And, you know, um, and even the, the use of essential workers still doesn't quite capture um, who's essential and who, in fact, is disposable. Because I work, I'm here at UCLA right now um, the university is basically shut down. The workers who are essential workers are basically physical plant workers and people who are outside um, doing, you know, basically maintaining uh, the, the, the groundscape, the landscape, and cleaning, you know, these buildings and having to be subjected to possible infection inside these buildings. Uh, and when we had fires all over UCLA's campus, you know, at the edge, you know, these terrible fires, they forced cafeteria workers, groundskeepers and janitors to come in, but faculty and students didn't have to come in, right? So it's essential workers, but really it's sometimes it's a euphemism for disposable workers, those on the front lines uh, who are doing work that the university or other corporations say are essential to them. Uh, but necessary, but they don't. They're not treated as essential because if they were treated as essential, they'd be the highest paid workers around. I cannot tell you how many workers said to me, and probably also to you, Michelle, that same thing. Right? They say I'm essential, but actually, I feel expendable. And I did just want to note on the the care work question. There's money in the COVID bill that Biden passed that is a direct payment to parents. And I had this wonderful moment on Twitter, sorry, I keep bringing up Twitter, um, where somebody was like panicking about this bill and oh my goodness, they're gonna give money to parents and doesn't this undo the whole Gingrich-Clinton welfare reform thing? And Ilhan Omar just posts a meme that says yes. And I'm like, because if we wanna talk about like a black workers movement in this country that does not get its due, the welfare rights struggle, which was led by incredible women like Johnny Tillman, who had worked in cotton fields and doing laundry and all of this work, and then 
finally got access to, you know, what was at the time aid to families with dependent children. And so, you know, they get demonized for that. And we got quote unquote welfare reform. But I think one of the things we need to pay attention to is this, you know, as we move forward from the Biden plan is that that was for one year in this bill and we need to make it permanent. Um, speaking of childcare, um, and this is a good time to uh, read an audience comment. Uh, oh, right, there it is. Uh, when we talk about workers and their wages, we must also talk about unpaid labor such as childcare at home, childcare outside the home, and other caregivers, usually women. I remember reporting last year about um, the state of uh, state-sponsored childcare centers and how the childcare workers at those, I mean, those places didn't close, of course, right, even though schools were. Um, and it's sort of like people kind of assumed that the children of the so-called essential workers who are going to hospitals, et cetera, their children would just like magically find a place to like vanish for like eight to 10 hours a day. And of course, these childcare centers were there to really absorb, um, absorb, you know, the childcare burdens of, of, you know, those, those workers. Of course, they, they themselves experienced uh, many other additional burdens that came along with that work, including taking all the safety precautions and the health precautions, often with deeply inadequate funding from the state. And because they are considered, uh, you know, small business owners, because they own a daycare center in their home, they're not, uh, you know, they're not able to avail themselves of the same protections that go along with um, federal labor standards and, um, and, uh, you know, the federal, uh, federally protected right to organize. Um, One glimmer of light in all of that was, of course, the fact that uh, California child care, child care providers actually managed to unionize, right? And they were able to do this through um, a special arrangement under state law. But um, that's just one example of the innovations that are sort of um, born out of necessity, I guess, in the midst of this crisis. Um, And that's, um, and of course, you know, childcare providers had been trying to organize for years, right? But it was really the pandemic that really, um, you know, showed, you know, what was at stake um, in that, the sort of, uh, um, the sort of very delicate balance of, you know, labor and community interests and family that care workers are, are holding up every day. Uh, there's actually a part two to that, that comic question. Um, it, it says, where's the feminist movement when it comes to these issues of working class people? Where's the feminist movement when it comes to this union organizing of Amazon workers in Bessemer, Alabama? Now, when I saw that question, I kind of paused a second because I'm not sure what the question actually is getting at. If the question is kind of the so-called formal feminist movement, I would say I don't really care. Okay. Um, to me, the real issue is what 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 are working class women looking at and organizing, both broadly and Bessemer, Alabama itself. Um, if if the question is containing critique of, we can say a, a middle class white feminist movement critique well made. And to me, the the important thing once again is just looking at working class women who may be in the warehouse because they have to be there, or maybe at McDonald's and maybe doing two or three jobs. That's the question. And the whole issue is how do you, just if we talk about looking at class within the black community and, and kind of the black freedom movement, it's also important to look at class within the women's movement as well. And without that, um, the women will be very, be very weak and won't be very powerful. Yeah. Um, so the question actually comes from one of the great organizers in the country, Santawa and Kuma Ture, who's based in Philadelphia. And it definitely was a critique. Um, and someone who had long, long history. And I just want to add to that critique because 
you know, part of, I think, uh, what she's getting at, too, is that there was and still is. It depends on where you go and who you talk to. Um, if you go to, to let me go two different directions. Contemporarily speaking, the movement for Black Lives' most radical visionary statement was drafted almost entirely primarily by feminists, Black feminists, uh, queer, straight, trans um, lawyers, and so many of them, some of them were my former students. I know, I know who they are, you know, um, who I learn from all the time. And so that is the feminist position. I mean, it's just not the one that we are associated with in terms of the kind of mainstream media. Uh, and so Barbara Ransby's wonderful book, you know, uh, Making Black Lives Matter, Making Black All Black Lives Matter, you know, tells the story of these foundational feminist organizers in BYP 100, in Movement for Black Lives, Black Lives Matter, uh, in Sada's Daughters, Ella's Daughters, all these different organizations. That's where, that's where feminism is. It's BIPOC feminism. It's you know, indigenous feminism. That to me is, is and, and these are the folks who I think are on the front lines in terms of supporting the workers in Amazon, but also drawing the, the same connections that Asante Wild raises, saying that, you know, you can't separate the struggle over the question of childcare uh, and, and women's unpaid labor um, from the question of what it means to get paid, you know, less than a living wage. And those things are really connected. Um, and one thing I just wanted to throw out there since I have the mic <laughs> is that, you know, there are, there's so many organizations that we don't give credit to who are right behind the scenes making possible some of these movements. And I want to just hold up like Black Workers for Justice, for example, or the Southern Workers Assembly. These were organizations that bring together some of the best, most radical Black thinkers um, and activists and organizers who are really building labor and have been doing it for a long time. And one of the reasons we know about, or one of the reasons that the, the best summer workers even became national news was because of the Southern Workers Assembly and Black Workers for Justice. They put, they put it out there from, from the get-go. And so I think that, you know, one of the things that, and what's great about the show and our conversation is that there's an alternative history being made that doesn't get documented in the same way. And it's our responsibility to document these movements and see who they are and see what's going on. And that would then remind us of a previous history. And that is, if you look at even the heyday of, of feminism in the 1960s and 70s, you had like the Chicago Socialist Feminist Union, who if you look at their the list of, of demands and, 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 and this, their platform had all of the important things that matter, deeply anti-racist, anti-capitalist, visionary. If you take the Combahi River Collective, uh, which is a, even a better example, Combahee River Collective was a socialist organization, socialist formation, um, not as Barbara Smith said the other day, we're on a panel with her, not just a think tank, but a group of women who are fighting serial murders of Black women in Roxbury and fighting for a kind of politics that they called identity politics that was about rolling back all forms of oppression. That's how they understood the identity, saying that as women, as queer people, as workers, 
as residents, as urban residents, as young and old people, as elders and these students, we bring everything with us in our fight and the experiences that we we undergo, we endure, are the, the ones that we're trying to fight back against, you know? And that fundamentally is the kind of, kind of feminism, I think, that, um, that we want, you know, that Asantawa is sort of raise, you know, suggesting that we raise up that's not being raised up in the same way. I, I would only add, um, is how do you turn the, the, the important ideas, correct ideas, into real power, into material force? Um, I kind of use the example that, that um, I, I'm, I'm kind of old. I'm older than I think anyone here on the, on the screen, you say, by a couple of years. And I was engaged in some of the, the, the battles around race and class back in the good old days of the 70s, the early 70s. And I remember you had a, a major conference at Howard University in 74. And I would say my side, the class folk kicked their ass, okay? But the, the, but the end was Farrakhan and Kwanzaa. And, and so the question is always, how do you take ideas that are largely correct and turn to material force? And that gets back to the idea of, I mentioned John Lewis and Snick, of actually listening to people and talking to people and building those deep roots. Not saying folk aren't doing that, by the way, but want to elevate that being an important part of things. Now, I say sometimes in my, in my many snarker comments that oftentimes we speak truth to power and power don't want to listen. And, and, and the question simply is, how do we have capacity to bend people's will to our side? That, that the right had the capacity at certain times to say, two plus two is five, and we're going to do about it. And we couldn't do anything about it at all. And so I want to always raise the question of how do you turn the ideas and the analysis and our initial organizing into more powerful organizing? So to me, it's always the vital question that we didn't need to address and answer. Yeah, I would just say, like, when we say, like, the feminist movement, I'm kind of like, is there one? I mean, is there a thing that is, like, just a feminist movement? Because, like, Movement for Black Lives is a feminist movement, right? Like Robin was saying, all of these women who are leading and making incredibly complicated, nuanced feminist demands um, that, you know, one of the only workers from Bessemer who's been on the record and been speaking publicly is a Black woman, right? Is Jennifer Bates. Um, she's been on TV. She was on Democracy Now! the morning that I was on. Um, and I was talking to a researcher earlier today about actually about sort of the feminization of warehouse work, right? That this is now a workforce that is full of women like Jennifer Bates. And we have to take this seriously as a place where women are working and organizing. And what are the specific concerns that women have in this workplace? What does it mean to be a woman wandering around a warehouse the size of multiple football fields, mostly by yourself all day? And what are the specific concerns you might have that some of your male co-workers might not pick up on? Um, and how are we talking about all of these things in a way that makes clear that they are also central to the demands of these workers and not sort of incidental to what's happening? Um, there are 800 and something nurses on strike in Massachusetts right now who've been on strike now for this is their fifth week, um, which is rare in this country in case anybody who's not a nurses strike nerd the way I am. Nurses strikes are usually limited time strikes because nurses are concerned about their patients. That this got that far and they are still out five weeks in is a really big deal. Um, and this is right incredibly gendered work incredibly important work to talk about in these moments, necessary work. 
and um, work that too often gets left out of conversations about worker power, even when teachers and nurses have basically been the most militant workers in the labor movement for the last 10 years. Yes, I said it. Uh, so. Yeah. Yeah. I, was just, I mean, I was just thinking about the red for ed strikes, uh, you know, strike wave lit that sort of swept the country um, a couple of years ago. And, and also just um, the way uh, when we think about the labor movement today, I think, um, you know, there are sort of notions about the labor movement that are somewhat static and historical. And like, it's important to recognize that, um, you know, even uh, among unionized uh, black workers, um, you know, that's that's a workforce that has um, also um, been subject to the same demographic shifts as the workforce as a whole. So um, black union workers were uh, are much more likely today uh, to be women and to be immigrants than they were in uh, the, you know, a generation ago, certainly. Right. And so, um, you know, we see um, the reality of workers' lives becoming more and more intersectional, even if our political rhetoric and uh, maybe some of the um, uh, somewhat uh, um, outmoded uh, ways that we talk about the labor movement um, maybe have have yet to um, catch up with that reality, right? So um, a lot of the stuff is already happening on the ground. Um, we just sort of need to find a way to um, articulate it and kind of marshal, kind of harness that that energy. And um, whether you call it feminism or anything else, right? Um, um, the lived experience of the the women on the front lines uh, certainly speaks to all of that. So I could put in a plug for a new book that just came out by Gabriel Winant, The Rise of Healthcare and the Making of a New Working Class. The Fall of Industry, The Rise of Healthcare and the Making of a New Working Class. It's a great book that actually makes a lot of these connections in terms of what happened at the end of the industrial era, um, which is not over, but just exported. <laughs> um, and then the rise of, of, of care work, nurse work, nurses in particular. Um, and it's a it's a really powerful book, so I would suggest that. Yeah, it's um, I actually reviewed that book for Book Forum, so um, we'll share a link to that. But Did so you like we wanted it? to come back. I loved it. Okay. I loved it. It's a great book. Um, yeah, it's a subject I'm obsessed with. So we wanted to come back to this question, which Margie Clark asked really early on and we did not forget about, but we did think it would be a good place to sort of come to at the end. So Margie asks, can you elaborate on global worker organizing against global companies like Amazon, like the minimum corporate tax Janet Yellen is talking about? Are there minimum working conditions that international actions could target? Um, global worker organizing against global companies like Amazon um probably wouldn't surprise many of the people in the audience to know that, um, you know, Amazon is unionized in plenty of other countries. Um, so in some ways, um, uh, global Amazon workers may be well ahead of, of uh, workers here in that regard. But, um, but I, I do think that there's increasingly um, dialogue and, and kind of uh, transnational organizing going on, um, different sectors of the labor movement around Amazon, and also looking at um, sort of global just-in-time production and also an increasing emphasis on supply chain organizing. Um, so when we think about logistics, right, we're also thinking about sort of how the mechanics of global capitalism works, right? And where can we find the pressure points and the choke points, right? Um, uh, uh, you know, um, aside from the Suez Canal, right? Uh, where we can, where we can really, um, where we can really, really upend things, right? And, and also, um, uh, um, where workers can find their power, at, you know, at different, um, at very targeted points in the economy. And, and you can't do that without some form of, 
of uh, coordination. And going back to Stephen's point about it's not technology, but about who controls the technology, technology has in many ways enabled um, a lot of that organizing to take place. Um, so, you know, that chapter is, is still being written. Um, but I, I do think that as people are becoming more aware of global capitalism, certainly since um, the turn of the 21st century, right, there's increasingly a dialogue around uh, organizing against corporations. And I think that um, uh, sort of uh, combining this idea of what it means to be uh, um, organizing labor um, under global capitalism, um, also, uh, you know, that, that can be combined very effectively with the critique of um, global inequality and how um, so much power and capital is amassed in, um, in just, you know, a handful of companies or even individuals, right? Speaking of Jeff Bezos. So, um, so yeah, I think um, the dialogue around inequality and um, the dialogue around what workers can do within that um, is really critical because um, oftentimes when you look at a company like Amazon, it looks like such a gigantic behemoth that it's really difficult to think about ways that individuals or even collectives of individuals can um, try to exert power against that. But, you know, it's happening. Stick a giant boat in the canal. I know we're winding down, but, um, but I thought what you're, ta- you're talking about global capitalism. To me, one of the insights of racial capitalism, and I wish we could have spent more time on it, by the way, that capitalism has always been global. It's not a new phenomenon. And I think that's important insight, not just a, a rhetorical insight, but a run in looking at practical implications. Because to me, it, that it's very, very important to talk about kind of the, the global tentacles today of capitalism. But it's very hard to chop off the tentacles when people, when the barbarians are the gate of the capital. And, and, and so it's very important to talk about how do we make sure we build power in the United States to actually main, to have some democratic barricades and to, and to expand them as well. Right, right. Uh, can I just weigh in on this uh, question? It's, it's such an important question. Um, one, it's true. Capital has always been global. And right now it's so flexible. One of the big fears about the warehouse in Bessemer, uh, though it's probably unlikely but not impossible, is that Amazon would just leave. You know, we just say, look, you want a union? We're just not going to be here. Um, they can't leave every state. Uh, but, you know, flexibility is really a, an issue. Um, but the other thing that's an issue is, you know, because I'm thinking about the second part of the question about Janet, Janet Yellen and the whole you know, sort of global corporate tax issue. You know, we, we have to, to go back to like a kind of old fashioned idea of anti-imperialism. Uh, because in fighting, it's one thing to 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 sort of promote transnational union organizing. That's really really important. It's another thing when you have uh, countries with regimes that actually have very strong labor laws, very strong minimum wage laws, very strong environmental laws, and we experience a history of living in this country that has overthrown those regimes, that overthrown those, com- those countries' uh, leadership. And so part of fighting, you know, for workers is fighting for, you know, s- states in other places where workers actually are fighting for their rights within the state. Um, and so that's, that's, a, that's a small part. Of that's not the only thing. But that's something we really, really have to, um, to consider being anti-imperialists and standing in solidarity against forms of U.S. intervention. 
Ah, yes. Chenjirai. Chenjirai Kamenika points out, also Somali-American women in Minnesota walked out even before COVID. Um, I once upon a time had a long conversation back when we could go to bars. Remember bars? I miss those. Um, with Chenjirai about the Awud Center, which has been organizing um, the Somali migrant workers in Minnesota around Amazon, and that they were the first ones to get Amazon to the bargaining table. And they did it over prayer time and respect for, and accommodations for their fasting during Ramadan. And I mean, I, I love to bring that story up because every time people are like, oh, you should only organize workers around bread and butter issues. And I was like, yeah, I guess you got Amazon to bargain, though. Um, and these are, in many cases, new immigrants, right? But the organizing in that community that's based in um, an understanding of the particular needs of those workers, the particular um, networks and histories of solidarity that come, you know, with migrant communities, all of that. Um, and I was just thinking, again, while we're talking about global and also local with Amazon is that like Amazon's business model. Well, I mean, its main business model is Amazon Web Services, which is another thing that we have to figure out how to break. But its business model of retail is delivering as fast as possible, which basically means they don't have too many places they can go if they close one warehouse. You know, if they want to deliver in Birmingham, they need a warehouse in Birmingham. They could maybe close this one in Bessemer, but they can't go that far. Um, and this is an insight, of course, that was made to me by one of those um, Minneapolis Amazon workers. Like we, they can't outsource us the same way they could outsource the production. Um, I still want to figure out how we get another ship stuck in the Suez Canal, though. We're working on it. Yes. <laughs> um, so I know we've been talking to all of you for a while. I wanted to give everyone a chance if you had any last things to say, Robin, Stephen, Michelle, before we wrap up. Well, a couple of things. Um, one, I'm glad we're here. And thanks so much, Robin and Michelle and Sarah, for joining us. This has been a phenomenal experience and to be continued, by the way. It's the question of of building Black worker power and building real power to me. I want to kind of lead in with that. You know, um, I, I and I would purely say I'm cynical, snarky, but I think back to some of our ways we have very, very bad debates on race versus class, looking at black folks and our conditions. And people are saying, oh my God, the new deal was racist. And I said, like, wait a second, y'all. Policies come from power. If you told me that a place where a, a, a point in this country's history where black folks couldn't vote and old white folk who were straight up racist were in charge, well, does can be racist, y'all. It's no insight. That's kind of common sense. And so the question is simply, how do you build power to change the world? And then the last thing, given that, as my good friend Jane McLeavy talks about an effort she was doing in Philadelphia organizing nurses, and they had they charted out the entire workforce, and they found that the main department that was stopping the drive, the lead worker there was a black woman who was fiercely anti-union, by the way. But they didn't throw up their hands. They simply said, let's roll up our sleeves and do the work. And they talked to her. They found out what issues she could not win on her own with her own kind of personal power and said, wait a second, if you join with us, we can change the world that you want to change. And so that kind of rope your sleeves, do the organizing, not the shouting, not the sloganeering. That's how you build power that's lasting. And so I hope that we can continue to do that. 
do more of that and um, have a good time doing it, y'all. Thanks a lot. Before we go, I mean, we don't know, obviously, the fate of this union election, but um, I think we shouldn't be uh, um, excessively humble or pessimistic about what has taken place over the last uh, several weeks. Um, we've been talking about how Amazon is this uh, huge, you know, hegemonic force, and it is, but, um, but if we're um, smart and willing to take calculated risks, um, um, I think it's, uh, uh, it's important not to uh, underestimate, right, what um, ordinary workers uh, can be capable of. And, and um, it helps, of course, that we're in a some in a somewhat more labor, slightly more labor friendly political atmosphere, but we're on the verge of um, perhaps um, um, having the PRO Act, which is, um, you know, kind of a big deal. And uh, if something like the PRO Act were in place, then um, uh, the types of uh, practices that Amazon engages in, which are pretty standard for um, for most large corporations these days, um, many of them would be would be outlawed, and that would really change the landscape that we're looking at. So. Um, Things aren't all that bad, I guess. When we fight, we win. My sister Makani Timber taught me that. That's it. Thank you so much. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And that's it for this special episode of Belabored, a collaboration with Stephen Pitts of Black Work Talk. Special thanks to our guest, Robin D.G. Kelly, and of course, to the audience for your great questions. And thank you to Natasha and Colin, as well as the whole team at Organizing Upgrade and Black Work Talk for producing this event. If you'd like to see more content like this, be sure to support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash belabored. You can find all of our archived episodes and subscribe to Descent Magazine at descentmagazine.org. And lastly, we want to hear from you. What do you think about the outcome of the Amazon vote? If you work at an Amazon warehouse, what's going on at your workplace? How are you faring now that the economy is supposedly opening back up? Are you being pushed to return to work before you're ready? Are you still trying to get unemployment insurance? Still waiting on that stimulus check? What would you like to see in place to make sure that you feel safe when you go back to work? Let us know at belabored at descentmagazine.org or reach out to us on Twitter at hashtag belabored. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.